0: Welcome to Rereads. To I am so grateful to have made the acquaintance of Samuel Hamilton. Our meeting occurred for the reason that my daughter had the idea that Samuel and I would get along just fine. Years ago, we used to live in Mount Vernon, Washington, an agricultural community in the Skagit Valley. My wife and I moved there as a childless couple. And then, years later, we eventually moved away with three small kids in tow. I relate all this as backstory, for it was sometime during those years that I purchased John Steinbeck's generational epic, East of Eden. Like many book buyers, I had great intentions of reading the novel. I had read Grapes of Wrath in high school, and somewhere along the way, I had read Steinbeck's short stories. But East of Eden had eluded me for a long time, in part, because I stuck it on the shelf and mostly forgot about it. Twenty years after the purchase of that book, I finally pulled it down from the shelf so it might be read. Not by me, mind you, but by my daughter Emma, who is needing a book for her American literature class. Emma loved East of Eden and found the sweep of this multi-generational story to be fascinating. She abhorred the amoral villains and compassionately considered the broken heroes. Over the next year, after her reading of Steinbeck, she would often say, Dad, you've you've got to read it. I, I think you'd really like it. I believe now that what she was really saying was, Dad, I would love to talk with you about this book. I want to talk to you about the characters, their decisions, and the complicated relationships that they held with one another. We never had that conversation. Until now. This may seem a long preamble, but it's to help the listener understand that this episode of Rereads is going to take a slightly different turn. In the past episodes, I have offered a book and reflections about life and faith after revisiting some of these helpful authors and guides. With East of Eden, I want to talk about the Reread experience with a shared book, the physical copy that my daughter read and scribbled her annotations upon. To share about the three way conversation that she and I had with Steinbeck, I want to have the conversation with her that I didn't have when she was alive. It was not until this last year that I listened to Emma and once again pulled Steinbeck off the shelf. I opened the book and found that it was filled with her notes and underlinings as she was trying to interact with the story. I had already begun the rereads project and I thought it might be interesting to not only read and consider East of Eden, but to read and consider the notes Emma left behind. Perhaps we could talk about the book together, where a reread could also mean a beloved book that is shared with a beloved person. Perhaps we could have that conversation after all. So I'm grateful. I am grateful to have made the acquaintance of Samuel Hamilton, a man who Steinbeck describes as being a big man, bearded like a patriarch, with graying hair stirring in the air like thistledown. His cheeks above his beard were pink where the sun had burned his Irish skin. The eyes, light blue, and filled with young delight, the wrinkles around them were drawn in radial lines inward by laughter. While Samuel Hamilton may not be the central character of the story, his goodness and kindness and wisdom have a lasting effect upon those he meets. Steinbeck presents a man that is a combination of prophet and priest and poet, a man of, quote, intellectual enthusiasms, that is a genuine and sincere curiosity of the world and its people. Self-aware, Samuel describes himself as a man who, quote, shepherds his words like rebellious sheep. Responding to the main character of Adam, who comes to Samuel to ask his counsel, Samuel replies with the fervour of his people. "'Oh, Lord, man, now you've put your foot in it. You say it's a dangerous thing to question an Irishman, because he'll tell you. I hope you know what you're doing when you issue me a licence to talk. I've heard two ways of looking at it. One says that a silent man is a wise man, and the other that a man without words is a man without thought. Naturally I favour the second. If I get started, I have no self-control. My son Will says I talk to trees when I can't find a human vegetable. Samuel's care and compassion also created a burden for him, for in his desire to help people, he is also confronted in his powerlessness to change people or their circumstances. I deeply resonate with Samuel, and is perhaps the reason Emma wanted Samuel and I to get to know one another. Steinbeck makes the following observation. Samuel could not mind his own business when there was pain in any man. I could stop right here and have a long chat with my daughter, actually all of my daughters, about this one descriptive statement Steinbeck makes about Samuel Hamilton, for it is an infliction that finds itself in my household as well. In other words, how does one care for people as an intuitive, compassionate person whose highest ideals are that people would know peace? My children have been driven by similar ideals, concerns for justice, compassion, truth-telling, fairness, and grace. And yet, just as Samuel's finest qualities made him vulnerable to even despondency at times, So I think that in my house, we too can bear the weight, maybe even the assumed responsibility of other people's problems and pain. I will own my own weakness in this regard, that I have not always balanced compassion, empathy, and self-care very well. But enough of that. (laughs) So we should return to Samuel Hamilton. How does one, like Samuel, a man filled with compassion and curiosity, care for a person, a, a woman named Kathy, such a woman who lacks any regard for other human beings unless they serve her cold and calculating purposes? Emma's observations of the character of Kathy were filled with horror and disbelief. She was aghast at such a awful individual could exist in this world. I can only guess that she took some comfort in the knowledge that Kathy was a fictional character and not one you would ever risk a chance meeting. Steinbeck's description of Kathy Ames is startlingly simple. She is a monster. In the opening paragraphs of the eighth chapter, Steinbeck introduces Kathy in the following introduction. And I will warn the listener, many of Steinbeck's words and images are off-putting as you hear them or, or read them. But this is a section that Emma also vigorously underlined. "'I believe there are monsters born in the world to human parents, some you can see misshapen and horrible with huge heads or tiny bodies.' Some are born with no arms, no legs, some with three arms, some with tails or mouths in odd places. They are accidents and no one's fault as as used to be thought. Once they were considered the visible punishments of concealed sins. And just as there are physical monsters, can there not be mental or psychic monsters born? The face and body may be perfect, but if a twisted gene or a malformed egg can produce physical monsters... May not the same process produce a malformed soul? It is my belief that Kathy Ames was born with the tendencies, or lack of them, which drove and forced her all of her life. Some balance wheel was misweighted, some gear out of ratio. She was not like other people, and never was from birth. And just as a cripple may learn to utilize his lack so that he comes more effective in a limited field than the uncrippled, so did Kathy, using her difference, make a painful and bewildering stir in her world. That is a difficult section to read, but I think Steinbeck was trying to describe a character that he himself did not even quite understand. Kathy Ames does not care what effect her actions would have upon others, for she utterly lacked empathy. Steinbeck uses other evocative words to paint the picture of Kathy, too many to relate, and I will spare the listener of the nightmares, but suffice to say, she is a monster. Or to use Emma's word, quote, demon. Steinbeck matter-of-factly states, when I said Kathy was a monster, it seemed to me that it was so. So again, I asked the question how does one like Samuel, a man filled with compassion and curiosity, care for a woman who lacks any regard for other human beings unless they serve her sinister machinations? At the midpoint of the book, there are two particular scenes that gave both Emma and I pause for reflection. The birth of Adam and Kathy's twin boys, and then a year later, the naming of the twins, Caleb and Aaron. The first scene is one of conflict, a life and death battle. The second scene is one of tenderness and blessing. Samuel is working on Adam's property when he is informed that Adam's wife, Kathy, is in labor and about to give birth. Samuel, who helped to bring his nine children into the world, is not daunted in his role as a ham-fisted midwife. Lee, the Chinese servant, cautions Samuel that this labor is strangely different. What he describes in the following terse observation, this is more like a bitter, deadly combat than a birth. Samuel, prophet, priest, and poet, is about to walk into battle. Steinbeck writes, It was almost pitch black inside, for not only were the shades down, but blankets were tacked over the windows. Kathy was lying in the four-poster bed, and Adam sat beside her, his face buried in the coverlet. He raised his head and looked blindly out. Samuel said pleasantly, Why are you sitting in the dark? Adam's voice was hoarse, "'She doesn't want the light. It burns her eyes.' "'Samuel walked into the room, and authority grew in him with each step. "'There will have to be light,' he said. "'She can close her eyes. I'll tie a black cloth over them if she wants.' "'He moved to the window and grasped the blanket to pull it down, "'but Adam was upon him before he could yank. "'Leave it. The light hurts her,' he said fiercely. "'Samuel turned to him. "'Now, Adam, I know how you feel.' "'I promised you I'd take care of things, and I will. "'I only hope one of those things isn't you.' "'And he pulled the blanket down, and he rolled up the shade "'to let the golden afternoon light in. "'After Samuel encourages, or strongly encourages, Adam to leave the room, "'he attends to the person and task before him. "'He had not looked at her closely until now, "'and he saw true hatred in her eyes, "'unforgiving, murderous hatred.' It'll be over before long, dearie. Now tell me, has the water broke? Her hostile eyes glared at him, and her lips raised snarling from her little teeth. She did not answer him. Now, for my listeners, it is at this point that Emma wrote one word into the margins Demon. Steinbeck comes to the apex of the confrontation. He stared at her. I did not come by choice, except as a friend, he said. "'It is now a pleasure to me, young woman. "'I don't know your trouble, and minute by minute I don't care. "'Maybe I can save you some pain. Who knows?' "'Suddenly her eyes glazed, and her back arched like a spring, "'and the blood started to her cheeks. "'He waited for her to scream or cry, "'and he looked apprehensively at the closed door. "'But there was no scream, only a series of grunting squeals. "'After a few seconds, "'Her body relaxed, and the hatefulness was back in her face. "'The labor struck again. "'There's a dear, he said soothingly. "'Was it one or two? "'I don't know. "'The more you see, the more you learn no two are alike. "'I'd better get my hands washed.' "'Her head threshed from side to side. "'Good, good, my darling,' he said. "'I think it won't be long until your baby's here.' "'He put his hand on her forehead, "'where her scars showed dark and angry.' "'How did you get the hurt on your head?' he asked. "'Her head jerked up and her sharp teeth fastened on his hand "'across the back and up into the palm near the little finger. "'He cried out in pain and tried to pull his hand away, "'but her jaw was set and her head twisted and turned, "'mangling his hand the way a terrier worries a sack. "'A shrill snarling came from her set teeth. "'He slapped her on the cheek and it had no effect.' Automatically, he did what he would have done to stop a dogfight. His left hand went to her throat, and he cut off her wind. She struggled and tore at his hand before her set jaws unclenched, and he pulled his hand free. The flesh was torn and bleeding. He stepped back from the bed and looked at the damage her teeth had done. He looked at her with fear. And when he looked, her face was calm again, young, And innocent. I'm sorry, she said quickly. Oh, I'm sorry. Samuel shuddered. What then follows is that the maimed Samuel helps Kathy to deliver not one, but two baby boys. After the sudden birth of the twins, her cold resolve returns, and she asks that they be taken away. She has no warmth, no need, nor any concerns for the babies leaving Kathy to the inept ministrations of Adam, Samuel allows Lee to tend to his wounds. Steinbeck writes, and and Emma took notice. The life went out of Samuel. Do what you want, Lee. A frightened sorrow has closed down over my heart. I wish I were a child so I could cry. I'm too old to be afraid like this. When compassion meets cruelty... Sometimes you can get bit. The second important midpoint scene sets the trajectory for the last half of the story the naming of the boys. A year after the birth of the twins, they are still unnamed. Samuel confronts Adam in his failure to recognize and identify his own sons. Again, Samuel, like his namesake, fulfills the role of prophet and priest the men finally settle into a long conversation about the power of names and giving the young stories to live into. It is a fascinating conversation that digresses down a few side paths of topics like beauty and ugliness, destiny and free will, and the troubling story from Genesis concerning Cain and Abel. Emma made several notes concerning beauty. Adam cannot remember if Kathy was beautiful or not, for her violent response to him was one of sheer ugliness. It is as if her ugly actions erased her beauty and showed her to be what she really was, a monster. Emma helped me see that this is the classic fairy tale moment. The witch who has been disguised as a beautiful sorceress is suddenly revealed as an ugly hag, but not before she exacts her revenge upon those who underestimate her. Both Samuel and Adam bore the scars of that mistake. Emma noted that Kathy's beauty is forgotten while ugliness remains. This got me thinking about the nature of beauty and ugliness and how each are manifested by the heart and intent of people. Beautiful people seek the good in others, bearing good fruit in the world, which is an interesting phrase. Bearing good fruit. See, we love springtime in Portland and the slow blossoming and leafing out of the foliage. It's like we're in a living art museum where the paintings and portraits change before our eyes as we walk the streets of our hundred-year-old neighborhood. It's beautiful and engenders feelings like hope and calm. Ugliness, on the other hand, produces misery, distress, despair, psychic ragweed and goatheads. For Emma, as well as for myself, the revulsion towards the character of Kathy was not just about Kathy's actions, but about the coldness of heart that set those actions into motion. One of the many ways Steinbeck describes her is she had some quality that made people look at her and then look away, and then look back at her, troubled by something foreign. Something looked out of her eyes and was never there when you looked again. She made people uneasy. Can someone be attractively ugly? I think that the character of Kathy made evil attractive, if not curious. By way of preview, I'll return to this idea in a later month of re-reads, when I'll consider C.S. Lewis and his book Paralandra. And, if I may further cross-reference myself, unlike Tom Sawyer last month's reread who made mischief enviable the character of Kathy displays a will to power that would have made Nietzsche stand and cheer had he lived long enough to read about her in fact they might have made interesting bedfellows forgive me like Samuel Hamilton I am tending my words like rebellious sheep allowing them to stray hither and yon in the second half of east of Eden The story continues through a third generation. Adam's children, Caleb and Aaron, become the focus. These twin boys, whose conception and birth came from such tempestuous violence and manipulations, take the center stage. The reader is able to see them as infants and ask the questions, What will they become? Are they assigned to a certain way of being, or will they choose, as every human has the ability, to become something other, something different, than the role that was perhaps scripted for them by their parentage. It is a story of clearly biblical overtones. Rival siblings who generally care for each other, but each looking for the blessing of their father, seeking to understand their past so they may each chart their own future. In the long digressive scene where the boys are named, the wise and nurturing servant, lee observes the following the greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved and rejection is the hell that he fears in the 34th chapter of east of eden steinbeck pauses the story and writes what seems to be a parenthetical reflection a consideration of the choices between good and evil it is a transitional chapter summing up what has been and then introducing what is to come. Steinbeck writes, A child may ask, What is the world about? And a grown man or woman may wonder, What way will the world go? How does it end, and while we're at it, what's the story about? We only have one story. All novels, all poetry, are built on the never-ending contest in ourselves of good and evil. And it occurs to me that evil must constantly respawn. While good, while virtue is immortal. Vice has always a new, fresh, young face. While virtue is venerable, as nothing else in the world is. Interestingly, this is the place of Emma's final annotations. Sensing that this is a pivotal section... She seeks to come to an early conclusion as she interacts with the story. It is important to note that the following are her words, not Steinbeck's. Our entire lives are spent trying to figure out what is good and evil, and if our lives represented what we found out, we must live our lives with one goal above all else, to die knowing that we loved and were loved to die, knowing that we loved and were loved, while there is still plenty of underlining as she continued through the book, there are no further annotations from my daughter after this one. Her conclusion and reflection of the book and its characters are beautifully accurate in regards to both the story of East of Eden and more significantly in regards to the story of her own life. We must live our lives with one goal above all else, to die knowing that we loved and were loved. While these two scrawled lines are the end of her musings, I am content. Perhaps it is all right to finish off the story of the story of East of Eden's reread, Yet this I can say with certainty. Emma was impacted by John Steinbeck, and that brings me joy. She engaged with an offering of one of American literature's authors of note, and it had an effect upon her thinking and perception of the world. Forty years ago, East of Eden made the banned book list of many libraries and schools. I am once again so proud of my girl, as I am all of my girls to be unafraid of what many others found suspicious or too close to the ugliness of the world. Instead, in reading Steinbeck's generational epic, she came to the conviction that while there is brokenness, there is also good in the world. Compassion can confront cruelty. And what you decide, and more to the point, how you decide, can lead to that clarion cry, I Choose the good. The psalmist writes, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, and do good. Seek peace, and pursue it. This has been Rereads, and my name is Kent Place. Tune in next month as we enter into the movable feast of Ernest Hemingway in Paris in the 1920s. Until then, be well, and remember, you can never step into the same book twice.